all the way from Temecula, California, uh, our good friend Jerry V. Hi, my name is Jerry Valona, and I'm a grateful member of Allentown Family Groups. Let me turn the timer on. As I'll say later tonight, uh, podiums are a very dangerous place for me. Oh, 10 minutes? Yeah, sure. And you'll be throwing things at me in 15. Um, <clears throat> you know, growing up in, a, in an alcoholic home, and, and I used to say uh, it's uh, being raised by alcoholics. It's kind of like being raised by wolves. You know, it's, there's this, there's this uh, cynicism that I know, Karen and I were talking about this morning. Uh, to where you know we use sarcasm as, as comedy and protection and whatnot. Um, both of my parents are um, th well; they're not practicing alcoholics. They're they're professional alcoholics. I, I wondered where, in fact, the term practicing alcoholics came from because at, even at an early age, I figured out you know these folks got it down pretty damn good. Um, this is uh, my parents have you know wonderful stories uh, in that in those early days. My dad was a uh, uh, fairly busy, high-ranking television executive uh, in, in Hollywood working uh, at that time, I remember, for uh, KHJ Television, which is a, a local Channel 9 down there. And, um, you know, so in that atmosphere, there was just always a lot of entertaining, you know, the Hollywood types at the house. And, you know, we had, you know, even the full bar in the home, you know. And, and I, I don't have that really sad, we were poor children's story. No, we, we grew up in a very exclusive area of, uh, of the valley, um, Sherman Oaks, called the Royal Woods area. You know, we had this beautiful home on top of a hill, and I even remember to this day that it had a white picket fence and, you know, two cars in the driveway. And as my mom used to point out, you had shoes for every day of the week. Don't ever tell me you were poor. Um, you know, but what that just goes to show me is that you know, we talk about an alcoholism that it respects no boundaries whatsoever. Uh, it, it, it respects no ethnicity. It respects uh, no faith. It respects nothing, economic, social, nothing, that alcoholism affects not only the alcoholics, but those that have this wonderful journey of learning how to live with an alcoholic. And, you know, we'll probably talk a lot more about that tonight because, you know, uh, you know, first of all, thank you very much for for uh, all the hospitality uh, I, you have shown me, and uh, we'll laugh some about tonight about my year delay. I'm sure Richard will spend a lot of time beating me up on that. God, thank God. Um, and and from what I've seen up here so far, you you have such a hammer and nails uh, Al-Anon program up here. And as Richard and I were talking about the way over, it's you know he said, called the broken record. You know, go to meetings, get a sponsor, work the steps. And you know, and I and I love that because that's how that I that I was raised. When um, my my parents uh, decided that uh, they needed to uh, get sober, it wasn't just a let's sit down and have a television style intervention. Uh, my parents were very dramatic alcoholics, and uh, uh, my mother uh, on her last night of drinking the first time, uh, there's a few of those, you know. Uh, my mom's big book has a lot of crossed out dates, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and and God bless her because she she is the, probably the toughest individual I've ever met uh, in my life, and it took me years to realize that. But on her first last night of drinking, you know, she decided that she had an issue and that she had to to stop drinking, and she you know took a bottle of second all slashed her wrist and jumped out a second story window, and she lived. 
and uh, broke her back in the fall, and that set up things for a lot of you know stuff 40 years down the line. And you know, uh, as a family, you know, watches this, and we did. I was the oldest of four at that time. I was 10 years old, and you know, I know for me that my first reaction was just to shut down. Um, you know, I watched my mother bounce, and I didn't care because I was just absolutely tired. Uh, I know for a lot of us, we come in here to Al-Anon, we're tired uh, because it's hard chasing these people around and keeping up with them. You know, it, it's hard making them everything in our lives and trying to help them and get sober and point them in the right direction. And if I just do this, and I even did some of those things as a 10-year-old that they talk about, you know, hiding booze, pouring booze out, stuff like that. And you know what was funny was that when we stopped all of that, the rat bastards went out and got sober on their own without us. <laughs> you know, and just absolutely, you know, well, then what now shall I live for? I know I'll grow up and marry a couple of alcoholic women. Because <laughs> I'm just missing all of that drama in my life on a daily basis. You know, and, you know, my first marriage didn't work out. Gee, welcome to the club. Let me get a show of hands on that one. How many had a practice marriage, please? Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll probably talk more about this tonight, but I remember sitting in my Sunday morning meeting about six months into this divorce, just bemoaning the fact, again, that I was getting divorced. And this, Bryson talked about it last night, this 80-year-old knitter in the back of the room, 65 people in this meeting, about the same as what we have here today. And she goes, Jerry, we've been listening to you bellyache about this crap for six months now. Ladies, who's been divorced? And three-fourths of the hands went up in the room. And she said, welcome to the club. You are not unique. Try the steps. <laughs> love you too, Martha. <laughs> See, but that's what I love here is that you can pull covers here and it's okay. You know, and there might be a momentary rage, but um, <laughs> you're never here too long to have that occur. I don't care if you're a newcomer that's walked in this morning or if you've been here 40 years. I'm not going to do everything right, never going to. Uh, but I do exactly what I'm supposed to. My higher power makes sure that I get to places that I'm supposed to be in spite of myself. So in this second marriage, I, I met this woman in a Al-Anon meeting. Damn it, she was safe. And two years into it, she was an alcoholic. So I'm not sure what I do to women <laughs> that cause them to suddenly find diseases. But okay, um, you know, and we were blessed to have a, a child in this relationship in what I call our old age. I was 42 when my daughter was born. My wife was 40. We had no children in our prior marriages, so we were blessed with this child. We begged God for a child, and we got Liza Minnelli. We got <laughs> this little actress that I look at every day, and she, I love her to death, and I've been texting with her all morning. She's at rehearsal for her show. She's a little diva. Of course I had a little diva. Because the drama must continue. And I look at her and I go, you're either going to be a wonderful Al-Anon or an outstanding drunk, one of the two. I am not sure where this is going. But I no longer have that fear. So much of us come in here, aside from being tired with all that fear, and, you know, everybody's used the word shame. I, I just, you know, came in here and covered everything with being really loud and aggressive. Talks about in our literature about being smug, self-righteous, and dominating. Hi, that was me, because that's how I hid my insecurities was being, you know, the peacock with the feathers in the back going, you know, you really you want a piece of this, you know, and 
and, and I see a lot of guys that come in that way, you know, real hard. And God bless you. It took you a long time, but you broke me down. And and then you said I could stay, like was said last night. I was never asked to leave, you know, which is and, – and I tried my damnedest to get you to tell me to leave because that's just what happens. You know, so I just wanted to continue that progression. Here they taught us how not to do that. My family today is wonderfully wacky. I mean, um, they – the relationship that I have with these people in my life, if you had told me 40 years ago this is what you were going to get, I would have told you that you were nuts, that there's no way that's going to happen, that these people have ruined my life and I just went away from them. And that was at 10 years old. I had that kind of rage. Um, I know that what I have today with them, it's not perfect. Um, you know, My mom, after 25 years of sobriety, 30 days ago, had to get sober again. This is the third time she's had progressive. I said, well, you know, if you take out the breaks in the middle, you're close to 40 years, you know. But instead of reacting when that phone call came 30 days ago with, with you know, gnashing of the teeth and ripping of the clothes and all those wonderful biblical things and drama and all that stuff, it was, God, Mom, I love you, and it doesn't matter whether you're sober or not. You're going to have enough people that are going to be mad at you, you know, and whatever we can do to help, we're going to do. You just have to ask. And if that means just stay out of your way, then I'll stay out of your way. But I love you, and that's not conditional on whether you draw sober breath or not. I learned that in here. I learned that nowhere else. I've been a cop in L.A. for 30 years. We don't talk like this in the car, okay? <laughs> Mike, I'm not feeling well today. Stop the car now. Get out. You know, It's a macho group, okay? Learned how to cry in here. I learned how to deal with those emotions that used to just eat me up and became rage. And now they don't have to anymore. And that's because of this family. And yes, if you, if I want to complain about my family now, and God knows I do, that means that I have to complain about this family too because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that family. Uh, you know, there are other people that want to speak. I'm waiting for the buzzer here. There it goes. Thank you very much. And, of course, turn that silly thing off. And... Um, you know, as they say, uh, my higher power, you know, you get to pick your friends. You get to pick your career for the most part. You don't get to pick your family. My higher power picked my family for me, and it's a perfect fit. And I just had to go a long way around to figure that out, that it wasn't about me, that it was really about the relationship that I get to have with them, and I had to learn how to do that. So thanks for letting me share. So the way this works is if you would like to uh, come up and share anything, either coming out of what, what uh, Jerry just shared or just uh, something at random that's occurred to you, uh, please feel free to do so. If uh, we get more than one uh, coming up at a time, please uh, take a seat here and, and, and uh, be handy to the mic uh, so that we don't have a lot of dead spots on, on the tape when, uh, <laughs> when you hopefully buy it. Um, so the other thing to keep, that I will warn you about uh, ahead of time here is that uh, if you're not coming up to talk, I'm perfectly happy to monopolize the mic. <laughs> I, what Jerry was just sharing. Uh, he, part of the reason that I've spent two years, two frickin' years, trying to bring him up here <laughs> is that uh, he so much tells my story. You know, I got, I, I'm one of these people who got here with, 
with a pedigree. You know, I, I, both my parents are alcoholic. Both of my parents were the children of alcoholics. Uh, got alcoholic grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, I mean, you, you name it. Uh, if this thing's an illness, I'm a carrier. Um, and that idea that uh, one, of, one of the ideas I had for, the, for, for this morning and I kind of fell down on it was uh, to put out uh, uh, those 20 questions pamphlets on all the tables, you know. And one of the things that, that I heard from Jerry this morning that, that so resonates with me is one of those questions is, do you attract or seek people who tend to be compulsive or abusive? Yeah, I collect them, you know. <laughs> and, and what Al-Anon has, has done for me to a great extent is, has taught me, uh, yeah, you can still collect them. You just don't have to get it as, as enmeshed with them, Richard. Um, so I'm looking for anybody to be coming up this, at this point. We, we really, really do want to hear from you. And silo. Oh, there we go. It's our good friend, Mark. Hello, my name is Mark, and I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi, Mark. Uh, I, I really appreciated the... Um, story about um, the mother relapsing, you know, um, several years sober and drinking again. I, I, I recently had the same same thing happen in my life, and um, my mom was sober for a good two years, and then I phoned home a month ago and drunk drunk as hell on the phone, and or well, on Skype, actually, and... Um, my, you know, the same same reaction. Like my, I just feel that the blood rush to my head, um, sort of this fear, this anger, like, you know, again, and uh, you know, just it takes me back to being her, how I felt as a teenager, and but I, I didn't react to it the same as I, I used to. Um, I said, you know, I, I told her several times that I love her, and that uh, I'll call back soon. I, you know, I. Before, I probably would have let that conversation go on longer, but I, I ended the conversation fairly quickly because I knew it was going to go nowhere. And um, and then I actually I called my sponsor quite quite quickly afterwards. And so I was sort of debating about what is what is the kind and loving thing to do because my mom actually really reached out. She um, do you want to see me? I haven't been haven't been home for several months. And so I think the old me would have punished her and not went home and just sort of cut off contact for several months. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that that's the healthy thing to do or the kind or loving thing to do. But again, I don't, I don't want to run back and be the rescuer. So, um, so yeah, my, my sponsor and I spoke for a few minutes and, um, and it just seemed clear that just go home, have have uh, a bit of an action plan. Um, you know, have a few people ready ready on the phone that you can call if you if you need need some support. Um, have know when you're going to leave. Make it very clear. You know, when I'm coming home, when I'm leaving, and have have a meeting lined up for when you get back home. And uh, and and it worked. It was I, I could handle being home for 24 hours and be be strong, be supportive. Um, not 
not accuse her of anything. And so it, it was just a, you know, um, two and a half years of being in this program. Uh, that that one moment, uh, I felt a lot of a lot of growth and a lot of support from from you folks. So that, that's that's my little story. Thanks. Thank you, Richard. Hi, my name's Nikki. Hi, Nikki. That's my favorite part. Um. Um, I'm kind of new to Al-Anon. I, I came through another 12-step program, and uh, I've done a really good job my entire life of um, being in a large group of people and actually feeling really comfortable. Hiding in plain sight is what I used to used to call it. And so um, when I'm running the conversation, no one is asking me any questions I'm not comfortable talking about. Um, and so... Uh, I didn't talk about the alcoholics in my family because it wasn't relevant. You know, it was the the bag of crap that got me to where I am, and I wanted to focus on how to fix this and how to work this, and I'm going to work the 12 steps, and I got books on top of books and writing, and I'm going to learn it, and I'm going to do the 12 steps, and <sighs> things will be better, you know. And, uh, and it was through program that Richard actually said, uh, maybe you should come to Al-Anon. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go to Al-Anon. I don't really want to talk about alcoholics. And so the first meeting that I went to, um, I, I had to keep my, like my father, I have nothing but alcoholics in my family. I don't, I don't know what you mean by some alcoholics. Like, um, actually, my, one of my fondest memories of my grandfather I, as I have this glass in my mind, and I remember him taking me downstairs and teaching me the correct balance of making a quality and good Caesar, you know? And that it's the lime on the ice, and it blends it. And I was like, wow, we're bonding. And then, <laughs> and then I got older, and I was like, that might have been flawed. I don't know. I'm not sure if that was wrong, but I still cherish that memory. You know, I do. I still cherish that memory. I think uh, Ian told me once, one of those memories of our family is ice clinking in a glass. Yeah, when I think of my mother, I, that clinking in a glass, I can hear it. You know, it's like perfume of your grandma. I, again, that may be flawed. But <laughs> but these are my memories, you know. And so, um, uh, thankfully, my father passed away, and I was finally able to get underneath letting go of everything. So I, I came to program with a little bit of surrender, um, you know, swimming around in my mouth and, and being able to swallow that concept that it wasn't about giving up, it was about giving over. Because there's no way you could have come me to a meeting with a bunch of people with hard chairs where I was going to sit around talking about maybe surrendering. Like, I had to be already willing to get there to to waste my time not watching television, you know? And so... Um, so I came into uh, uh, Al-Anon, and I had to think about my mom, who drinks a liter of gin every single day. Um, and, uh, you know, alcoholics from alcoholics, who, you know, if I talk to her after 8 p.m., she doesn't remember the conversation because she's absolutely functional blackout drunk every single night of her life. Um, and, uh, and so I had to come into Al-Anon with that on my chest, and I was terrified, and I was frightened, and I was so angry. Like, the step one, I was just, like, powerless over alcohol. Like, I just wouldn't, 
because it had no control over me. But, you know, you've come to teach me that I'm, I'm powerless over the effects of alcohol on my family and who I am. And that it doesn't really matter whether you qualify as Al-Anon. If these things affect who you are, these steps can change your entire life. You know, and so um, there was so much uh, love when I came into this room. There was so much um, willingness to listen to me talk. There was so much willingness to connect, to identify with who I am, and so much absolutely unconditional love that I had zero arsenal to protect myself from how much you guys loved me. I completely broke down. I freaked out. I cried. I had more snot coming out of my body than I feel is reasonable. <laughs> I hated it. I mocked it. I fought it. And, uh, and, and had someone, an angel, come and grace me with her presence and just push all of that hurt. You know, I've been angry. Angry has got me through a lot of my life. You know, I, I don't knock anger. Are you kidding? It helps me all the time. Now it helps me identify when I'm angry about this, why is that? What's the point of that? That person who's talking that I want to punch in the throat, why is that that I'm angry at them? What is it about what they're saying? that? Because it, it's a reflection on me, you know? Uh, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. I've got that. Um, God grant me... Uh, give me the courage to change the things I can. I came in trying to figure out when it is I was supposed to change everybody else. And, and Richard gave me the, the key to acceptance, actually, which I think this whole thing is about, that taught me the only thing that I can change is me. The only perception that I can shift is mine. And it's every single person in this room that says something out loud today that helps me continue to shift that perspective. And I'm very grateful to be here. And I'm very thankful for today. And thank you for letting me share. I'm Peggy. Hi, Peggy. I'm codependent, and uh, I'm new to CODA for the second time. Um, I came 20 years ago, but like some people I've heard, I wasn't quite ready. And uh, so I started coming to CODA again because I found that I was having fits of rage, and I was found myself screaming at my partner at the top of my lungs, and I didn't recognize who I was. So I was familiar with CODA, and I thought, well, maybe I'll go check it out. So through that, I was told about this weekend, and, um, and so I decided to come. It is the first time in 11 years that I've ever gone anywhere without my partner. And uh, I didn't know what to expect when I got here. I was fearful that I might find it overwhelming because I'm new and I'm pretty raw. I've got a lot of emotion. And... Uh, <laughs> What I found was that I, I experienced something here that I've never experienced in my life, and that's acceptance, and that's love. I was surprised that when I came down this morning, um, one of the members greeted me and hugged me, and I wasn't sure how I felt about that. I, I thought it was good, you know. It's like it's nice to have a hug, but I, I couldn't figure out why is that person hugging me, you know, like... Who am I, right? Um, I grew up in a family that I believe was uh, alcoholism. Um, my parents died when I was really young. I was 16. 
And so I don't have a whole lot of memories of what happened, uh, what went on, but I certainly have all of the symptoms of codependency, and I can relate to absolutely everything that I've heard here this weekend. And uh, I'm sure that I'm going to relate to a lot more um, going forward. Um, so I guess basically I just want to say that I'm very happy to be a part of the group, and I believe that I will probably start going to some Al-Anon meetings when I get back to Calgary, because I think I'm, it's going to help me out quite a bit too. And I want to thank everybody here for listening, and um, I'm finding that I've only been coming to the meetings in Calgary for about, I want to say two weeks maybe, two and a half weeks. And believe it or not, I'm already seeing changes. I'm already seeing changes in myself and how that I deal with things. Um, my partner, we have children from previous marriages. He has two and I have two. And uh, the other day he took it upon himself for some reason, I don't know what was going on with him, to start talking about my daughter and, and bad-mouthing her and saying things about her and Normally, I would fly off the handle and start saying, well, what about your son, and then and, and that would be it. We'd be a full-blown out fight, right? But this time, I restrained, and I swallowed down all that stuff that was coming up, and I said, enough. Enough. And he stopped. And he didn't say another thing. And I am certain it's because I'm starting to feel... Um, that my voice is heard and that I'm able to speak to my feelings and I'm able to have somebody listen without judging me or without saying I should be feeling the feelings that I'm feeling. And uh, so I appreciate that from everybody here. Thank you very much. We'll uh, move on to our, our next uh, segment here. You know, one of the questions that often comes up when we talk about uh, alcoholism as a disease is that idea of nature versus nurture. Um, you know, Jerry talked about you know growing up in the wolf pack, and 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 again to to a great extent that was my experience. But um, some of us find that that uh, uh, the effects take a different path, and, and with that in mind, I'd, I'd like to call up. Uh, Tammy to share, please. I'm Tammy. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Tammy. Um, what I will say is that um, I started in Al-Anon way back when I, well, probably Alateen way back in the 80s. Um, and that's all I knew about the program was Al-Anon. I didn't know anything about AA. But I'm just going to start kind of with my journey and explain uh, how alcoholism runs through my family. Um, so I kind of have to do that with starting with the beginning of my life because um, the beginning of my life I was born, I have a twin brother, and I was, lived in that family until I was five years old. Um, n- not knowing it at the time because I'm too young, but uh, both, both my parents were uh, alcoholics. And the family broke down and I was then given up for adoption separated from my brother. And this is why I find the, the story really interesting. Also separated from 10 other siblings because we were the youngest. Um, and I was in a couple homes, adopted. That didn't work out. Found out later, of course, uh, due, to, due to alcoholism there as well. I don't really have a memory of the act of alcoholism back then between the ages of zero to six. I do remember the violence. I remember the yelling, the screaming, and all that stuff, but I don't actually remember drinking, things like that. 
I landed in the family that I grew up with um, when I was seven years old. And so this is kind of my argument on the nature versus however you say that. Um, because I grew up in a family where there was no alcohol. Um, a very strong, uh, fairly religious family, good, good values, good morals. Um, my dad would say I came into that family fighting every moral and value they wanted to teach me, but they gave me some good morals and values. Um, I do remember my mom saying to me um, when we were a little older, I was a little older, around 10, I had an uncle who was um, apparently in the, in the tossed-up program of AA, and my mom and grandma started attending Al-Anon. That was my introduction. I remember going to a few meetings, and that's really about all my kind of memory of that. I just remember my mom saying to me, um, you need to worry, or you should never drink, is what she says to me. And I'm like, what? Now I'm about 13, 14 at the time. And she says, because, you know, you don't know your background and you don't know where you came from, but um, you're probably higher risk of, uh, of um, being an alcoholic. And I thought, okay, I've never had a drink in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. But my uncle, uh, my mom's brother, is also adopted. And he had a, he was an alcoholic. And he's been in the program now, been sober for 40 years. So that's kind of where my mom started to put ingrain in me that I might, I might need to watch. But, of course, being a typical teenager, um, I remember my first drinks. Uh, I think it was three beer, couldn't stand the taste of it, made sure I drank them fast, and uh, had to be home by, I think, 10 o'clock that night. Got sick a few times and went home, and I loved it. I was hooked from the minute I drank. And every weekend that I could sneak away and drink... Um, I did, and you can only imagine where that journey continued. So I, I move into adulthood as, as an adult. Um, I, had, I was married and had two boys at a um, young age, uh, uh, 20 and 23 I was when I had them, and things seemed to be going okay. Um, I, I slowed down on the drinking because, uh, again, I thought I was taught some pretty good values and morals, and yeah, you shouldn't do that when you're raising kids. At least that's not how I was raised. Um, but the drinking pattern couldn't stay there um, because I was an alcoholic, although I didn't recognize it at the time. At 24 years old, I found my biological family. Here's where the tree falls apart, as I like to say. <laughs> so I'm now introduced to 10 brothers and sisters, uh, actually 15, because my dad had five before he married my mom, so now I have 15 brothers and sisters. Um, it was a honeymoon phase right off the bat. I mean, I was excited. I got to meet these people that look like me. I got to meet my twin. Um, I was the only one given up for adoption. The rest stayed. They were raised by my, my parents. So for me, my biological father had uh, myself, my twin, and one younger brother with my mom. My mom had seven from another man, and then my dad had five from two other women. Anyway, so as I got, when I first met them, I was like, wow, I fit in. Oh, my God. Like, this is awesome. Um, looking back now, it was because I could drink. I could swear. I could drink. I could do whatever I wanted. It was completely the opposite of what I was raised in. Um, not great scene for an alcoholic, but, and my twin brother and I, we drank exactly the same. And our journey of growing up, even though we weren't raised together, 
Um, we ended up in jail at the same time. We had DUIs at the same time. We ended up in mental institutions the same time. And we thought that was funny. It was like, wow, you know, we have so much in common. Um, uh, I'd like to my brother, my twin brother is also deaf too, so there was a bit of a learning curve there with communicating with him. But we connected right off the bat. And sometimes to this day, I'm not sure if it was because of our similarity in personalities and liking to drink or, or what. Um, like a good, um, I guess someone trying to be, this might might have been where Al-Anon might have come in handy for me. So my brother and I start to meet. He marries somebody. They end up having tons of kids. And um, I'm going to help him because he's not doing so well. So I move him to Saskatoon. Well, that's another story all to itself. But there's 10 children there that I now have a lot of um, attachment to and look after every now and then because they have all become permanent wards of the court due to his and his wife's alcohol problem. Um, but I want to get back to the other 15 brothers and sisters. Thankfully, just this la- about six months ago, I got to meet the two oldest I'd never met. So I'm 44, and the two oldest are 63 and 64. There's 20 years difference. My dad fathered and married at 14, so that's where it starts. Thankfully, they are um, recovering alcoholics. They are in a program, and um, I have them to talk to. As, as I get to the older siblings, I see that. They're, you know, they're willing to talk about it. I have a lot of um, my two brothers that are full-blooded, for sure. Um, they will say to me, yeah, I know I'm an alcoholic, but they're not in recovery, so there's still lots of problems there. Um, my sisters, in the, in the ten of my moms, there's five girls and five boys. Um, I have, well, my old, out of the four of those, three are recovering alcoholics. One still debating. <laughs> she drinks like I did, so I don't know, but whatever. Um, she, but she's still functioning and, and doing okay. And my brothers, they all are. Um, and, and either self-identified or recovering or kind of going back and forth, one step in the program, one step out. So interestingly enough, when Marty asked me about this, if I wanted to talk about this, I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll do my best. I actually mentioned to my mom, who raised me that I was going to do this. And my mom, um, I don't talk to her about my biological family too much because, uh, you know, it bothered her that I, I went and found them. But in some aspects, she kind of understood. I had a lot of questions. But she also knows that I have a nephew living with me right now that comes from the biological side. And so she started asking questions, and I, didn't, I started telling her about how alcoholism runs through the family. Um, so it was kind of interesting. So the last thing she said to me on the phone was, I've, you know, I'm so glad you opened up to me and told me all this. She says, because I didn't realize how, how rampant it was through your family. And she says, but I feel really good. And I said, why is that, Mom? She goes, you can't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> you can't blame me. And, and I, I can't, you know, I can't blame them at all. It's definitely, um, to me, I've, when I went into treatment myself, I was like, I argued the idea that it was a disease. Um, but now when I look at it, uh, I can't argue it. I really can't. It's too rampant. I have a 23-year-old and a 20-year-old, and I'm pretty sure someday they're going to be in the program, too. I hope. Am I close? Okay, good. I'm done. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) I I have to rescue Richard. (laughs) I'm an Al-Anon member. (laughs) And when I phoned him and said... um, 
at, at the last minute, two days ago, does he have a supper ticket for two of us? He said, Lois, I'll find you one because I love you. So <laughs> I'm Lois, and I'm a member of Al-Anon. Oh, hi, Lois. <laughs> and um, uh, I didn't grow up with alcoholism, but I was in training to rescue an alcoholic. Uh, I'm the oldest of eight, uh, a Sunday school teacher, and wanting to be a nurse, so a caregiver. So I was looking for so when Butch came along, he looked to me like he needed to be rescued. <laughs> uh, sad way to start. But And did you say that somebody was 14 when they became a father? My uh, Here I thought I, we had a record. My Butch was 17 and I was 18. And nowadays I look at my grandkids and I think, oh, no, don't let that happen. But 52 years later, we we survived. So that's pretty good. Um, and our family, so so I didn't grow up with it. My my dad may have been later on in his life alcoholic, but who am I to say? His his drinking absolutely affected us to some degree when mom passed away and he was drinking. But I don't know about that. But now, like I say, I've I don't know if I've attracted them or they were just there and we shook the tree and here they come. Uh, brothers, two brothers, a son, a husband. And um, I had trouble calling alcoholism a disease. Like I, an illness I could handle, but when people call it a disease, I thought there's no bugs or viruses or like. And then I saw the word hyphenated to dis-ease. And, and as I grew in the program and embraced the program and realized how much dis-ease there was in our kids and family and how much it affected my parents. One time I was talking to an AA member and and I said, I understand every alcoholic affects about 10 people. And he said, Lois, try 30. And, And as I go along, yes, everybody around is affected, but realizing that it's about the dis-ease, it took the emphasis off the alcoholic and helped me to see it as everybody's affected, not just the alcoholic. It's not his fault. It's just we're all in this and we're all affected by it. And thank goodness there's something like our program to help us find our way and give us new tools to live by. And um, I have a new slogan. And it's, I don't have the right to expect anybody to be different than they are. I just have to figure out how I participate. And, you know, I, I think blame, to me, I, I've felt that blame is a word that most describes the disease. Um, I heard an Al-Anon member one time say, if you don't have an alcoholic to blame, get yourself one. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really, I could blame everything on Butch. I mean, if if the kids were in trouble or the supper was burnt or the machine didn't work, or so, it was his fault. He wasn't there. He wasn't, it, it just seemed so easy. Obviously, he's wrong. Look at me. I'm here holding everything together. And um, I was getting sicker and sicker. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to be here, and I'm grateful to share, and I've really enjoyed everything I've heard so far. Thank you. Hi, I'm Linda, a grateful Hi. member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon, and I trust that I was meant to follow Lois because 
I was a Sunday school teacher, and I am a nurse. <laughs> and I've rescued a few alcoholics. Um, but I was thinking as far as the family tree, um, I grew up in a home, um, and I got to uh, Al-Anon because of my teenage daughter's drinking. Um, and I got there because... I got there with a lot of fear and worry because drinking and driving had killed my husband. I clearly knew my husband was alcoholic. I knew that when I met him, and it's likely what I was so attracted to. Um, and I really was worried that my daughter was. And, you know, so, you know, I kind of thought, well, maybe it was just this small town you know, we lived in it because that's what all the teenagers did. But, but Al-Anon certainly helped me find my way. And as I started to peel the onion, I realized I grew up in an alcoholic home. I was 40 years old. I worked in the medical profession, and I did not know that that was alcoholism. There was no swirling glass, uh, ice in a glass. There was no major fights that I remember. Um, because I don't think my mother drank that way when I was a younger child. But what I do remember was she took a lot of pills. She took Valium. She took 222s. She took 292s. And she had to escape a lot. She went, she always needed a nap. You know, she needed to get away from it all. And, um, but slowly I learned that in an alcoholic home, you don't trust, you don't feel, you don't talk. And, of course, my family didn't like that I'm sensitive and I can cry easy. So thank God that Al-Anon is a safe place and I can, you know, share with my tears. But when I realized that, it helped put the pieces together about how I became who I was and why wouldn't I be attracted to the alcoholic that I could rescue and fix and nurture and help and you know and that needed me and once I could even look at that part of the puzzle it helped me figure out how I became the parent I was and uh, you know for me to accept that my daughter is you know affected by alcoholism you know alcohol is still her friend she likes to drink she's 30 years old has two little ones I'm not going to change that fact you know so Al-Anon helps me accept she she has a disease that has a hold of her. And I don't always like the path she's on. I don't always like the choices she makes. But I love her. And um, Al-Anon truly helps me to see the good in her. And that's and what Linda had to say is really a nice segue in, into uh, the next panelist I'd like to bring up. Uh, you know, a lot of times, um, what seems to happen is that this illness skips a generation, and and uh, a lot of us uh, end up here because of concern over over a child. And with that, I'd like to to ask uh, my friend Bill up to share.
Thanks, Richard. I'm still Bill. I'm still grateful. Hi, Bill. Thanks for asking me to speak. I don't know if I've ever been a panelist before. I'm going to try and spend five minutes on my story and then five more sharing some thoughts I have on things that challenged me as a parent of an alcoholic child. I don't claim to be any expert. It's just my experience, so take what you like, leave the rest. I certainly relate strongly to everything I've heard so far this morning. Today, uh, the alcoholic in my immediate home, a child, is working uh, in Calgary. When I texted him yesterday, he seemed sober. I don't know how he's doing today, and that's okay. In my broader family, alcoholics all over the place. Uh, my mother was an adult child who never found the fellowship. Her father was an alcoholic. Uh, my dad's grandfather was an alcoholic. My wife's grandfather was an alcoholic. My wife has two alcoholic brothers. I talked to all my kids when they were little. I had the talk about uh, that your, your mom had with you. Uh, your genetics don't look too good. You might want to go easy on the uh, on the substances. Uh, and you know, uh, I am, I am, I've got my opinion on nature versus nurture and whether it's a disease because I've got four kids. Three of them don't have it. One of them has it. So let's roll the clock back 24 years, even before my son was born. I was very excited. I had three beautiful daughters and would happily have had a fourth. But I was so excited that he was going to be a boy. And when he arrived, I thought he was perfect. We share many personality traits and physical characteristics. We also grew up in similar families. I'm an only boy with four sisters. He's an only boy with three sisters. Uh, we have the similar sense of humor. He laughs at my jokes. Now, what could be more endearing? <laughs> Until alcohol started to pull us apart, we were very close. Today, we're close again. But there was about five years in the middle there where we weren't close at all. Looking back now, I think that I was always obsessed with him. When I was little, my dad was away a lot, and uh, so I didn't get to see him much. He had to be away for work. So I was committed to being a stay-at-home dad, if you will. I was going to be there for him. I was going to coach his teams. I was going to go to movies with him. I was going to do father-son stuff. I'm not sure this was his wish, but it was mine. We spent a lot of time together, and I got so enmeshed with him that today I feel like I almost disappeared. By the time he was 13, he started to drift away. I thought it was just teenage stuff. I was wrong. Today I know that he had found alcohol and marijuana at about 13 years of age, and eventually harder drugs. And uh, they made him feel like he belonged. They, they filled the hole in him, he's, he has told me. Filled the hole, he felt. They started out as his solution, but uh, as young people sometimes do, he went down pretty quick. By the time he was 17, uh, they'd become a problem. Looking back at this four-year period from 13 to 17, I'd say that I felt I felt that dis-ease. Dis I was uneasy. I didn't know what to do. I hoped he would grow out of it. He didn't. The spring he was 18, he quit school just before it was time to write his grade 12 exams. 
and I found out later, uh, started uh, dealing, although I didn't know this then. I had my suspicions, but uh, denial was more comfortable than uh, looking at the truth. I was afraid. Looking back on it now, it seems, it kind of feels like a slow motion car crash. I don't know if any of you have ever lost control of a vehicle on ice. Uh, you can turn the steering wheel any direction you like. It doesn't matter. You keep spinning. You can put your foot on the brakes. It doesn't matter. You keep spinning. Uh, you're out of control. And that's happened to me. And all I can say is you just kind of squinch up your face and wait to see if you hit something or if you come to rest. So there I was, uh, knowing that things weren't going to turn out well. Like I knew things were not going to turn out well. But it took another 20 months worth of research for him and for me before we decided to ask for help. My actions slowly got crazier and crazier, and so did his. Uh, one of the things I think about is his car. I gave him an old car to drive, and I know now he was driving impaired every day, every night. He was drunk or high all the time. Uh, I have a sister who was killed by a drunk driver, and yet somehow I gave up all my power to the disease. I didn't have the gumption to take his keys away. Uh, his behavior with respect to that car was crazy, too. He, uh, When he finally decided to get help, he decided to go on a going into rehab farewell tour. So <laughs> <laughs> the AA guys will know what I mean. And... <laughs> And so he went out on a big week-long party. And uh, the last uh, event was uh, $2 Tuesday at Louis at the U of S. And, of course, the U of S cops park outside Louis on Tuesday night. But he and his buddies came out like with drinks in their hands and climbed in his car and went to drive away completely nuts, like a vodka and something under this passenger seat when I finally went to get the car. But, uh, you know, like just absolute insanity. Another way I know I got crazy was I turned into an amateur detective. You know, I would try to uh, listen down the heater vent because his, ba his basement was in the bedroom when he was on the phone. Uh, I would f follow him to work to see if he really went, if his car was parked there. Uh, like I couldn't just sit down and have a discussion with him. I wasn't able to confront reality or, or talk to him in an open way. So my life got unmanageable. I didn't know what to tell my friends. I didn't know what to tell my family, full of the guilt, shame, and blame. Uh, we had arguments. I had arguments with him. I had arguments with my spouse. I got depressed. I pretty much quit going out. Eventually, his life got unmanageable. He started to get in trouble with the law. And then an unexpected miracle in terms of our journey. He turned out he didn't like jail. <laughs> It raised his bottom enough that he decided to uh, get some help. So at age 19, he signed himself into a family treatment center in Calgary. And uh, I thought that was wonderful, but there was a catch. I had to go with him and his mother and his sister, the one that was still home. So it turned out, actually, uh, to be an important step in my journey, too, a miracle for me, too. We spent nine months in rehab. AA for him, Helen on for me. On November 12th, it'll be three years since my family graduated from this center in Calgary. Today, he seems to be in recovery, and some of the time I'm in recovery. We've made our amends. We've reconciled. Emotionally, we're close again. Physically, we're 600 kilometers apart. 
We both seem to have more gratitude, less attitude. Life is good. So I've spent a little time this week thinking about the challenges I faced trying to let go of my son. Sometimes I think it might be different when the alcoholic is a child as compared to a parent, a spouse, or a friend. Actually, I'm not sure that there are that many variations of the family disease. Anyway, here's my experience for what it's worth. A few thoughts about what it was like for me and what it is like for me to be the parent of an alcoholic child. First, when he was blowing up, I wonder if perhaps it's a little easier for me as his parent to wear that, to think it's my fault, to feel responsible for what's happening. In my case, I certainly thought I should be able to solve the problem. After all, he was a child and I was an adult. I'd been responsible for him from the day he was born. As he grew, I thought it was up to me to teach him how to succeed in life. I was willing to tell him what he should do, whether he asked me or not. When things didn't work out, I took that failure as my failure. I thought it must have been because of something I did or didn't do. Today I know this is false. Today I believe he has a chronic progressive brain disease that he can hold in recovery but can't be cured. That's his issue. I have to work on my disease, which is my obsession with him. And I've discovered that I can be just as obsessed with him when he's doing well as when he's struggling. It's therefore really important for me to remember that he's God's child. I'm just his father. Second, sometimes I wonder if the closeness of the relationship made it harder for me to detach. He is flesh of my flesh, very like me. In my case, when my kids hurt, I hurt. So that makes me want to take their pain away, just as a purely selfish reaction. I don't like pain, so I don't want them to have pain. Today I know this isn't possible, and I don't even think it would be desirable if it was possible. How would he learn to deal with his problems, and how would I learn to deal with mine? Today I still have a difficult time maintaining the separation necessary for a healthy relationship with him as a young man, and he'll soon be 24. Fortunately, Al-Anon reminds me to detach with love. When I remember to do this, we do much better. I can't take away his pain. All I can do is love him, try and stay out of his way. Third, with a child, the parent starts out in control because an infant is helpless. In a healthy relationship, this controlling aspect should drop off as the child becomes old enough to make their own choices. In my case, the habit continued. Because I'm obsessive and fearful, these habits continued way past their best before date. The relationship became unhealthy. I was controlling and manipulative. He was resentful and manipulative. I like recovery better. Fourth, in the case of a child, I think it's possible for the parent's ego to get in the way. At least I think mine did. I couldn't understand why he didn't listen to me. I thought that with all my wisdom, I could persuade him by force of logic that it was a bad idea for him to drink. Of course, this was a complete fail. His primary relationship when he was using was with the substance. Everything else was secondary. Now I think that what was really going on in me, at least partly, was fear that he was making me look bad. What would people think? I wanted to straighten him out because his behavior reflected on me. He was embarrassing me. He was hurting me. It was all about me. Self-will run riot. Today I think that while there may still be a lot of people who don't understand what happened to me and my family, who think perhaps I'm a bad father, I'm grateful that I don't think that anymore. I know that nothing I do can make him drink and nothing I can do can make him stop. I can let go and let God. 
So today things are pretty good for me. It's easy to be grateful when he's in recovery. But at the same time, I don't spend too much time worrying about relapse either. Relapse is part of recovery. My life isn't so dominated by fear anymore. And all it takes to maintain this state of mind is three or four meetings a week, time spent praying and meditating, reading the literature, making phone calls, going for coffee, staying close to my sponsor. Did I mention I'm obsessive? (laughs) It's still a small price to pay for the peace of mind that I'm receiving. I find that if I keep myself in fit spiritual condition where my son is concerned, I can practice detachment. And then I can couple that with patience, love, and tolerance. Not perfectly, but not bad. I can remember that he's a good guy with a bad disease and that yesterday, at least, he was still in recovery. And I'm very grateful for the progress we've both made. Whatever happens, it's been three and a half wonderful years. Thanks for letting me share. Hi, my name's Bryson. Hi, Bryson. And, um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I appreciate, Bill, thank you very much. It was the things you lost so much what you said. I really hit me. Um, and, I, and, you know, one of our, uh, the things we say, and they say in our literature, is to find out more about alcoholism. And so for me, um, I've actually have a, a lot of friends who work in recovery, and I've gotten to hang out with some some. Uh, pretty high-powered doctors, in, and there's a lot of research now. You know, we deal with the spiritual side and the spiritual solution, but there's a, there's a lot of, you know, actual, you know, science behind alcoholism. And, uh, and what hits me when I think of that is um, that because it affects our brain and our thinking, uh, you know, we have to use the thing that's broken in the healing process, which is a horrible idea when you think about that. Um, if you had to rehab a broken leg with the only tool was that broken leg, it would be really difficult. And, and that's the way it was for me with alcoholism. So, so I love the fact that the program didn't require me really to think too much. As a matter of fact, you know, it, for me, it was like I needed to think less because I was obsessed with thinking. And so when I came in, um, denial was mind-blowing. Like, you know, you, you see, like, you know, you look at, like, a, a brain game or something, and you'll see something, and then you look at it again, and it's not what you thought it was. And so it's clear that our brains, you know, perception, they talk about a disease of perception, but our brains perceive things certain ways, you know, and, and, uh, and that happens to me all the time in the world. And it happened to me in this disease, it was outrageous, the amount of denial. So when I came in, you know, the, the, the joke of this, the, the panel is, you know, uh, if you shake an owl on family tree long enough, alcoholics fall out. And for me, um, yeah, I didn't have, I, you know, I can't even say it, say it. I didn't think I had, is the way I should say it. I didn't think I had alcoholism in my family. Um, the phone in my family weighs like tons. The, the phone must weigh, I'll translate, must weigh 100 kilograms. <laughs> um, true stories, I find out that relatives have passed away on Facebook. I, I mean, that's true. I mean, I, you, we, there is there's so little contact between the members of my family. And it's not because, oh, we hate each other. We love each other. Like, it's unbelievable. We get together and, and, you know, and there's just this amazing kinship. However, then when we're apart, we don't stay in touch. And we just don't. We don't talk. 
You don't talk about things. Uh, you certainly don't talk about feelings or what's going on. So for me, the, the third tradition was really huge because I couldn't admit that the person that I was in a relationship or I was obsessed with was even a drug addict or alcoholic in the beginning. So I didn't really understand any of it. And so for me, you know, the only required membership would be a problem alcoholism and relative or friend. And when you read in the opening, they say if someone's drinking or sobriety is bothering you. Well, I, you know, I had, I could put that together and I could stay here. I also did not want to be in this program. I didn't want to come to these meetings. I didn't want to become one of those people that hung out and, and did this stuff. And, and I was kind of creeped out by the whole thing. And so for me, it was really hard to stay and to, to participate in a program at all. So I, um, But the way I describe that things started to break for me was um, – if you go to a hospital and you have symptoms and you're sick in some way and they give you an antibiotic and that antibiotic heals you, then you don't have to know what was wrong. You can just assume that it was some sort of infection because antibiotics cure infections. I was sick. I got better. And the program worked that way for me as I was just so out of options and, and, I, and I, you know, I didn't know anything. I was just completely down to the bottom. So for me, I was able to go, okay, now let's, let's, let's work these steps. And, and, the, and it's, you know, it's tricky the way they're set up. They're in that order for a reason because I could not accept certain things. I could not admit uh, huge chunks of my life. And I was not willing to or ready, and I would have fought you. So the first three steps, you know, there was a little bit of admitting there in the first one, and I talked about that last night, you know, where it's like, well, I could, but I, I, could, I could see there was unmanageability, and that led me to some powerlessness. And then they kind of let me go with this kind of God step stuff in two and three. And, and then, you know, when I had a, a sponsor there, I had home group and, and people that I loved, and I had a higher power that I could trust, then I could actually do an inventory and I could start to think about things and I could remember things. And part of my story I share is that, uh, that to my knowledge, it was not sexually abused. And the reason I say that is that I know hundreds of people who suffered sexual abuse who don't remember it and recall it later in life. So for me, I had things that were strange in my life and in my inventory and in my attitudes. And I go, well, I don't know. I don't remember anything like that, but I'm, but I'm open to it today. Because it doesn't make me less than, it doesn't make me anything. It just makes me willing to be open and honest about who is. So I can't diagnose and, and you know, alcoholics in my family. You know, like I said, down south, we don't have alcoholics. They don't admit to being alcoholics, so there's no alcoholism in my family. And <laughs> most of my family, if they heard me on one of these tapes or came to a meeting, they would be baffled at what I was talking about. And seriously, absolutely. Um, but I know that those questions, I'm probably 18, 19 for 20. And that's only because my denial is still not fully broken. I'm sure the 19 and 20th are going to happen in a year or two. And, uh, and this stuff worked, and it healed me, and I got better. So I don't have to trust my brain. I don't have to trust my memory. And, and most importantly, how do you know an alcoholic's lying? Their lips are moving. Um, I don't have to trust family members or alcoholics to tell me if they're alcoholic or not. It's just what's going on inside me. And so uh, let's get back on schedule. Thank you guys for letting me talk. Hi, I'm Diane. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi, Diane. I love your enthusiasm. <laughs> 
Um, I've been going to the adult children group in Regina for about three years now, and uh, I love the topic, shaking the family tree. The... uh, my family tree, you didn't have to shake very hard to find the alcoholics because they were dangling from the limb with a gin ball in one hand and a reefer in the other. So it's like, hey, there they are. Uh, so I managed to fix this problem. I detached with a chainsaw, and I just zip, 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 locked off those limbs. And uh, it worked for a while, uh, but it made for a very pathetic-looking family tree. Um, but I went about my life. And when the proverbial crap hit the fan, I didn't know what the problem was because I'd done everything right, and I didn't join in the party, so I should have been, you know, ecstatic, and I wasn't. And so through the miracle that is uh, recovery, what I came to learn was that I needed to shake the tree a little harder. Uh, And then the ones that were kind of hanging in the you know, nooks and crannies uh, started showing up. And I learned that I grew up in an alcoholic home, but my dad was a dry drunk. And, you know, he would have probably been better if he had drank. <laughs> He'd have been more tolerable. However, it didn't work that way. Um, so I came into recovery because I needed to learn some new ways of living. And I started going to Al-Anon just regular Al-Anon, because I couldn't get to the adult children group, and I'm not even sure it was around when I first started. Um, I went there, but I couldn't really relate, because I didn't live with an alcoholic, (laughs) so I thought. Um, Then I found my way to the adult children group, and I thought, yeah, I I identify here really well. And then I came to learn that, in fact, if I shook my tree (laughs) just a little harder, I had actually married an alcoholic and did not know it. And... uh, he didn't know it either. Uh, I figured it out before he did, and I, I told him how, why I thought we were having problems. <laughs> and you can figure out how that conversation went. <laughs> uh, however, he is in recovery now, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful that I have managed to somehow put some of my family tree back together. Um, you know, it's different than it was before. Uh, my relationships with the people in my family tree are different, and I'm okay with that. And uh, it certainly isn't, you know, the tall, glorious oak tree. <laughs> uh, that's okay. Uh, I tried to pretend that I was living in that. It was more like the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Um, but, you know, uh, today I can say that those people are part of my story. They are part of my family. I have a choice in how I choose to interact with them. I try not to take the chainsaw to the tree anymore. Um, You know, and there's still healing on those limbs that I did chainsaw that needs to happen too, but because of recovery, that can happen. And the biggest thing I'm grateful for is when my husband um, hit his bottom, we were able to have an honest conversation with our children. They didn't see it coming. Uh, they had no idea. They were, oh God, how old were they? Not big. Twelve and nine. Thank you. <laughs> really? Oh, okay, I thought Brooke was younger than that. Anyways, doesn't matter. Uh, okay, eleven and eight. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, she's thirteen now. So I was really relating to the story about the teenager thing too. Good God, help us. 
Okay, whatever. Anyways, they're having that conversation a hell of a lot sooner than uh, than we had those conversations because we didn't talk in our family beforehand. And that is the gift of recovery. And, and there is a part of me that has some fear about what will happen with them because I know that this is a family disease. And, uh, you know, I know there's a genetic component to it. But we're having the conversation now, and it's starting. And that's really all we can do is just be in today. And they have their higher power. Um, you know, their journey will be what their journey is. But I'm grateful that they come, that they're getting a healthier tree, I guess, to start out their lives with. And that's only because of these rooms. So, yeah, I love this topic. And, uh, yeah, thanks for letting me share. Hi, I'm Faraday. I'm a grateful member of CODA. Um, Hi, Thanks. Uh, really, thanks for coming, Bryson, because um, I really appreciate your story because I also don't come from a fam- family of alcoholism. Um, I shake it real hard. I, I really can't find it. Abusers and narcissists, yes. Um, but uh, I, came, I first came through this program through my husband. Uh, I came to Al-Anon to support him. And I remember looking at those 20 things and being slightly confused because I was like, uh, isn't this how everybody feels? Uh, but then also thinking like maybe my husband would always say like as soon as we met like you understand me like nobody does and I was like straight up like this could be it and then but you know I didn't have alcoholism in my family so I kind of felt like a fraud like to keep coming and I also wanted to give him his space for his own recovery and then his sponsor had suggested maybe coming to Codependence Anonymous because it's you know, sometimes these symptoms kind of come hand in hand. And so he brought home this flyer, and he's like, well, I don't really see myself. What do you think? And I read it, and I was like, I don't see you, but I sure see me. <laughs> like, whoa, that is impressive. Um, so I started going to Codependency Anonymous. anonymous um, and so it, sometimes it's hard for, not harder for me to relate because I didn't hit bottom, like, right when I went. It was more like, okay, these people got my number. And uh, I remember my first meeting, people being, I don't like hugging. If you ever like, come to a meeting, you'll like notice I like totally leave before all the hugging. And uh, I'm working on that, but it's going to take a while. Two years this month. <laughs> um, but I remember uh, Christine actually was like, hey, do you want to hug? Oh, maybe I should ask because you're codependent and you'll probably just say yes. <laughs> I was like, I was like this, these are my people. <laughs> um, but I hit, I hit bottom about a year or year and a half maybe before uh, I came to program before I was with my husband I I ended a relationship with a, an abuser and an addict and uh, and I always liked I went to this meeting down in Florida once with alcoholics and they were talking about bottom like the absolute bottom for alcoholics is uh, death right the absolute and that I really related to that because my absolute bottom was that I didn't exist I had traded so much to uh, control the person, make them love me, make them change, that I came out of there like totally not an individual. I was gone. And so I slowly tried to rebuild myself by like trying not to please people more. And uh, so that helped. In this program, um, I I joined the program because I, I, I have, uh, you know, abusers and, and compulsives in my life and I wanted to uh, be stronger, like not so sensitive. And, not so, and so I wanted to be able to handle those relationships. And actually through the program, those relationships have drifted away. 
Um, I don't really attract them as much anymore, and they don't react to me. I also wanted to stay in a career that uh, wasn't really well suited to me, but I was trying to be good enough for it. And uh, those things have really changed. And um, step four was the most powerful for me. I had a lot of abusers in my life, and I felt like, well, clearly it's not going to be my fault. Like, obviously, they're just ragers and jerks. And uh, what I found was just, like, all in those steps was dishonesty. I never said what I wanted and what I needed. And uh, that's really helpful because whenever I'm afraid, I'm actually dishonest. So that's really helpful for me to not create the same mistakes. So I'm really grateful to this program, and I'm really grateful to Al-Anon and AA for helping me in my recovery. Thanks. Hi, I'm Christina. Hi, Christina. I'm a very grateful member of Al-Anon. And, uh, yeah, shaking the family tree. I had no idea my family had been affected by alcoholism when I came into the program. I came into the program to be a good girlfriend to the active addict that I was dating. And, you know, things were a little crazy. I mean, he tried to commit suicide in my basement. But, you know, things weren't that bad. You know, it was just a phase. It was going to be fine. I had no idea when I came in. And I uh, ended up at an adult children meeting by accident. And I went in and I was like, oh, is this Alan on? And they were like, actually, it's adult children. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I can just, I can go. That's okay. And they were like, no, no, you can stay. And then after the meeting, I was talking to this lady, and she was like, you know, if you don't think you have alcoholism in your family, you're not looking hard enough. And I was mortified. And like two years later, she became my sponsor. Um, Because that's how it works here. And uh, it took me a really long time to um, admit that I qualified, because there was no open alcoholism in my family. But when you talked... um, It was like, oh, my God, that's what this is. Like, it just, it explained all this stuff I felt inside that I had no words for. You know, and then when I spoke, you would come up to me and be like, oh, I got what you were saying. And I was like, this is so weird. You know, and then it was finally the 20 questions that that really kind of hit home. And because I had all of them except the one about open alcohol. And uh, it finally kind of started to click. And then the more I was in the family or in the in the meetings and in the program, I started to see it in my family. Um, and that was really, really painful um, because our isms are all underneath. They're just an undercurrent. They're all hidden. And uh, the more I learned, the more I started to see. And it was really, really painful. And to start to notice that things about um, my childhood and, and my upbringing and... Um, Things were not the way that I thought they were or the way that I had been told they were. And that that made me really angry and really upset. Um, so right now I'm working through uh, trying to accept that. And it's just been a really interesting experience. And, you know, at family gatherings, I hear an uncle say, you know, like, oh, a day without beer is like a day without sunshine. And, like, that makes me go, ooh. You know, whereas before I would have just laughed it off and not noticed. And, you know, my little cousin who's nine telling a story about, you know, how her dad was um, 
so drunk that they were lost in a casino trying to get back to the hotel room and everybody laughing and and my dad saying, well, it's a good thing you took care of your dad. And I'm going, no. You know, and, and, and seeing her, her go, yeah, I felt weird. And I don't think anyone else in the room heard that I felt weird. You know, so I start to see these, these flags and it's, and I can't do anything about it. You know, it's, it's, it's been interesting. And then starting to see how it's affected my family. And I see them hurting, and I see them going through the same things I went through before program, and how they're hurting themselves without the acceptance and the, you know, hanging on and just, you know, wanting things to be the way you think they should be. And, you know, I've tried, (laughs) like lots of us do, you know, to share, and, and I get the, you know, oh, it's really good for you. We're really glad you found something because... You know, we're fine, but you, whoa. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a struggle, and sometimes it's really, really painful because I, I see them hurting, and I see them in pain, and I see them doing all the things that we do that don't help, that make it worse, and there's nothing I can do to fix it. You know, all I can do is pray, talk to my sponsor, and... Uh, and start to do what's right for me. And a lot of times that means setting boundaries and, and breaking the mold and having to deal with the uncomfortableness and the anger that that, um, that sometimes causes and understanding that I, I can't explain it to them. They're not going to understand it. Maybe someday, but not now. And I wouldn't be able to do that without the support of a program, without the support of the sponsor, without the support of a higher power. Um, so, yeah, I don't really know how to wrap wrap this up. But for me, um, being in program and you know trying to learn how to be uh, part of my part of my family and. Uh, because as Jerry said, my higher power picked them for some reason. And I guess where I'm at now is the trying to learn and take the responsibility and realize I'm not a child anymore. And uh, it's my responsibility to step up and to figure out how to be um, a good daughter, a good sister, while at the same time, um, you know, being true to be to me and, and, uh, having a healthy life and a healthy program. And uh, you guys teach me how to do that. So thanks. I want to thank our panelists and, uh, and everybody who came up to, to share. Um, we heard this morning that, that uh, you know, we don't, we don't get to pick our family of origin. Um, and uh, that can create some complications. Um, but we come here, and if you find what I've found, you, you find uh, a spiritual family, a family of choice. And it's a family that, if you read the traditions, it's based on, on ideas like, like unity and, and anonymity and unconditional love. And that, our literature talks about don't go to the hardware store for, for milk. Right, uh, I come here and I get the, the, the love and the acceptance that 
I don't find in my family of origin. And that's why I started this morning by saying good morning, family, because you really, you have become my family of choice, and I love you all. Thanks for sharing. <laughs>